Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Okay, I think that's it. I think I coordinated him. Okay, it's Wednesday, the afternoon, and uh, for those who are watching video, you can see I got a kapachka situation over here with a lot of books around me because the bio, the person I'm going to talk about today, is a, a bookish and complex kapachka uh, uh, figure. Uh, first, I want to thank the sponsor who responded to my plea the other day, a uh, good friend I've never met, and that would be... Uh, Benjamin Bernstein, Benzian rather, Benzian Bernstein, who's in the Long Green Valley on the farm. So he rescued by farmers. Uh, thank you very much. I uh, was in Lakewood on Shabbos on Sunday, and somebody said, who are you going to talk about this week? I said, I didn't know. Yeah. You see, you gave up doing the, uh, what do you call it? Yard sites and so forth. I said, I didn't give up anything. Just it happens the way it happens. I have no particular plan. And that put a bee in my bonnet. So when I came home to Baltimore, I said, just for the heck of it, let me see whose yard sites are now. I went to a whole bunch and nothing turned me on until the very last one from this month. And that was the Shulte Geburb. I have no idea why it turned me on. The good Lord runs the show. And it's funny, it just tingled off something in me. And ever since then, I would give him thought. The Shulte Geburib, who I want to do today, who's a very interesting, complex figure about a lot of which there's not a lot known about him, but recently a whole big part of him get known. as just an interesting story, even though you won't think so. And it's, in my opinion, very no gay to us nowadays, or it dovetails with a lot of what happens to us nowadays um, because he's a major figure, although he lived a short life. He, lived, he died at 36. He's a major figure in the internet revolution of the 16th century. Of course, what I mean is the printing press. You and, and, and that's why it parallels in interesting ways what's happening in our lives as far as learning is concerned today. I mean learning Gamora. Things like that. So in that regard, it's very fascinating as far as I'm concerned. Especially somebody like me likes Nakudos, cheater books, things like that. He's from that world. So... Let me say by way of background, you and I are living, as we all know, in the middle of a technological revolution, an information revolution, which is characterized by the internet and all kinds of things like that, and desktop publishing and all the new ways of doing graphics, and so on and so forth. The, this is the age, therefore, of the Art Scroll, of the uh, Steinsalz, of the Hama Or, whatever those things are called. Ozbahadar, Mesifta, and all kind of other knockoffs of the type. are roughly the same thing. Which is to convey large amounts of information to us in ways that wasn't so easy before. So you're paralleling in a certain way what the internet does. Used to be I can go look up something, it was a pain in the neck. Believe me, I did it. Now, a touch of a button, you probably get it, if you know what you're doing. Okay. Now, this is revolutionizing the learning, whether you know it or not. Within a few years, I've said it many times for a joke, but it's not a joke. You're going to have a video, Shaz. I don't mean that you're going to have somebody on the video giving a dafyomi. But the dafyomi itself phenomenon would not be possible, not really, without all these new information things. How much of people would be doing the dafyomi if the art school didn't exist? Honestly. How many guys out there would be giving Dafyomi Shiram if they didn't have the Masifta and things like that? Honestly. You see? So, be that as it may, the impact is huge and it's going to transform the learning in some way or another. As I was just starting to say, suppose in 10 years from now or 15 years from now, they're going to have the video. I want to look at a page in Gemara, let's say, for example... Even a machlokas rishonim You can have two people act it out. 
You know, Bugs Bunny and somebody, you know. This will be the Malva, this will be the Lova. Mickey Mouse is the Lova. You know, Goofy is the Malva. And so on. Or, you know, Donald Duck is the Mazik. And Daisy May is, is the Nizik. And so forth. And that's going to be Mamchish. It's going to bring alive the scenario in a way that the best Magachir couldn't do. Because seeing is better than hearing. I know it sounds crazy. But it's just crazy if I told you 30 years ago you have English art scroll, etc., etc. Believe me, when the art scroll came out and I worked on it, oh, the Rebbe said, oh, nobody should use it, this, that, and the other. Yeah, right, right. But they do. <laughs> you see? Now, there's a plus and a minus. I'm not disagreeing with that. But nevertheless, that's how it goes. I'm simply conveying that the technology is accomplishing a revolution. If you know how to successfully ride that wave, you can end up as we are in a world of unprecedentedly large harbuses, the uh, dafyomis, especially the virtual ones and things like that. As you know, you have guys out there that give uh, uh, blot shears to tens of thousands of people every day. Okay, Such a thing never existed. It couldn't exist without the uh, internet and the other information revolution technology. And so that's affecting us now. And like I said, even though you can laugh and make fun of me now, but Lamaisa, when somebody puts out an accurate video of the way the Ksos learns this, versus this and the Sivas, you understand? Or you ask the Kasha Reb Chaim through, the, through a cartoon, and you get an answer from this, another cartoon, even though it sounds, perhaps you think something blasphemous, but it's not. And what you'll have is unprecedented clarity for an unprecedentedly large number of people. That's going to be just interesting. You see? You can do with the Gemara, with the Roshanim, the Achronim, and all the rest of it. It's going to be a brave new world, the world of our children, or better yet, our grandchildren. <laughs> now, something like this, of course, different, happened 500 years ago with the technological revolution of the 15th, 16th century. Of course, the printing press, which had as large an impact at that time, relatively speaking, like our current technological revolution is having impact on us. The question is, what about the Torah side? Undoubtedly. Consider well. Once upon a time, everything was manuscripts. There weren't any printed books. Now, uh, excuse me. What did it mean that people had manuscripts? If you had them, you had them. Very few people had them. Second of all, who says I have the Gemara with the Rashi on this side and the Tos on that side? People were lucky if they had a whole bunch of words together which constitute the Gemara. Bamatsiya. Elsewhere they had another manuscript if they got it with had Rashi in it. And elsewhere they had another manuscript if it had, I don't know, you know, the Rajvur or something like that. You understand? And you had just coordinated together. And the learning was much harder. Therefore I'm sure a lot of people dropped along the wayside. Okay? And the only way, as far as I can imagine, that one could master this material was the old school of chazring and chazring and chazring and chazring and chazring and chazring and never stopping. So if I had just a whole thing with Bubba Bitsi on it, I remember I'd do over and over and over and over and over and over again the Gemara part, and then when I get my hands on a Rashi, or get my hands on a manuscript that has Tosas in it, assuming that the manuscript is uh, relatively flawless, assuming that the handwriting is legible, assuming that the cipher didn't make some mistakes and skip some lines, all this was part of life. You have no idea how hard it was. Commit yourself to the process of learning if you went back hundreds of years ago. Okay? There aren't so many manuscripts where it has a Rashi on the side or something. There are some. But for an average person, you copied out what you're able to copy out. Let alone who has a whole Shas. Let alone who has a whole Shas with Rashi and Tosis on it. Let alone who has a Yushalmi in addition. You see how you're narrowing down the base of the big learners. So, obviously, when the printing press came along, you know, it opened up a world. And now you mass-produce texts, and you can possibly, if you do it right, get your text more accurate. You can get them also less accurate, but you can get them more accurate. Now you can at least bring Rashi and Toso on the same page. Right? I think some of you know, once upon a time in Spain, it was Rashi on one side and Ramban on the other, but it doesn't matter. You know, that was called the Spanish Tosafos. Because, you know, it works with the Chidushim of the Sephardim. It's basically the Tosafistic enterprise. They're doing the same thing. They're asking the same questions because the questions are there. And the only difference is, are they giving different answers? 
That's the job of a Rebbe in a yeshiva. Magachir in a yeshiva, you know, how come Tosas give this answer and the Ritva says a different answer? Explain the chilek between the two answers, etc., etc., etc. That kind of thing. So, I'm just trying to tell you, take yourself back once upon a time to the brave new world, characterized by the invention of the printing press, which is in the 1450s, middle of 15th century. It takes another 20, 30 years for it to catch up with the Jewish world, as has been true with the internet. And, you know, it's catching up now with the firm world and all the rest of it. Our school got in kind of early. And you have a situation in which brave new horizons are there. If it's done right, if it's done wrong, not. Okay? Now, married to this, contemporary with this, was a whole bunch of very interesting uh, and dramatic events in the Jewish world, which were not necessarily great, especially 1492 and the expulsion of the Jews of Spain, which was such a big catastrophe. You can imagine. Consequently, you can understand that some people would say, Oh, Zed, Zed, Luma, Zed, Barlahim. That, you know, the Gashmi's downfall is now going to be maybe uh, remedied somehow or other or was supplemented by the Ruchnius or intellectual expansion made possible now by the proliferation of Hebrew books uh, with Mepharshim and so forth, which allows much wider masses of people to access what you and I take for granted as part of everyday learning. Once upon a time, Middle Ages was the property of an elite who owned the manuscripts or had access to them and uh, was able to devote time to learning that way, first memorizing, and then you memorize the Rishon, and then what they would call the Akron, what we would call the late Rishon, and things like that, let alone the Shalas and Shubas, all the rest of it. It was a, a, a different world. Okay. Now, the first Hebrew books, even piece of Gemara, we're in Spain, late 1400s. No, it was before 1492. This guy wrote the book on that subject. He ain't the only one, but that's the one I have lying around in my house. Uh, today, the video will be better. <laughs> Called, as you see, The Makers of Hebrew Books in Italy by David Werner Amram. Now, he wasn't a from guy, I don't think, I think he was a Talmud of Jastro, if I remember correctly. And he was an expert in the Italian Renaissance business. The Jewish stuff he knew fairly well, as you see, as the dates of all the printing of the books. But he was no Talmud Chacham, not at all. Not at all. Okay. But Spain is not really where it took off. Instead, it was Italy. I think you know that. And I think you're familiar with the Venice Talmud. Many people are, because that's the first time they printed the old Shas in the format that you and I are familiar with, with the Gemara in the middle of the Rashintosis on the side. That was in the 1520s. In Venice, which interestingly enough was very anti-Semitic and wouldn't allow Jews to participate in the project. That's a whole schmooze by itself. We'll leave that alone for the side. But wh why was the Talmud and the Mikras Gadol printed in Venice? As a business capitalist enterprise, it's a book that I have many buyers. Relatively speaking, there are a lot of Jewish readers, relatively. And if you print out these shasas, they will be bought in Italy, elsewhere in Europe, and maybe beyond Europe. And so is a moneymaker. You know, if they would sell books on Greek mythology, that'd be that kind of moneymaker. Here's a Jewish thing, and they knew their Jews will pay for it. So, however it was put together, it was put together. And that started the ball rolling, to print out a Rambam, and to print out of this, and print out of that. You know, all kind of the difference for them. And the idea was to make money. Okay? Uh... It's, as I said before, it started in Venice. It continued in other parts of northern Italy. I'm talking now about the 1500s, or as we call it, the 16th century, when Italy was broken up into different states. I've spoken about that many times. Southern Italy, which is about almost a half, a third, a half of the country of Italy, was off limits to the Jews because it was called the Kingdom of Naples. And ever since 1504, it was annexed to Spain. So as we know, the Jews were kicked out of Spain, they are not going to be in the kingdom of Naples. In the middle was the papal states were ruled by the Pope. And in the north was a bunch of Italian states. Uh, the Republic of Venice, uh, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, the Duchy, later the Kingdom of um, Piedmont, the Duchy of Milan, etc. A whole bunch of other ones. 
And this is where you had these small Jewish communities. But as I tried to say many times, small doesn't mean that you didn't have quality. In a lot of these small communities, you had Talmud HaChomim. There were yeshivas in different places, and therefore there were Italian Jews who perhaps were significant scholars. Maybe they made a living doing business some other way. Maybe not. Um, I spoke about this farmer the other day, for example, who had an MD. But, you know, his main thing was Jewish scholarship. There are many people of those lines. Our hero today, the Shildegabur, as you call him, Yeshua Boaz, is from Nachevra. He was He lived all his life in Italy. His family ran away from Spain. That's clear. 1492. He's born in 1518, so that means he's born less than 30 years after his parents fled Spain. So 1492 to 1522 would be 30 years. So it's 24 years, 26 years later. Okay, he's born in 1518, about. Uh, and he's going to die in the 1550s, very young. So here's a guy who's going to live his life in Italy, northern Italy, his whole life, um, in the 1520s, the 30s, the 40s, and the early 50s. Uh, okay. And he's Sephardi by background. Libby, I'm relieved that he came from a learned and rabbinic family. The Sephardim, you'll see why. The Sephardim, when they left Spain, had their... And remember, those who left Spain are self-selected. The chickens and the cowards that are the ones who stayed behind kept their money and converted to, 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 to Christianity. The ones... In, who left Spain in 1492, were the Geborim, the Sephardim to They were willing to give up everything for Yiddishkeit. So that tells you right away who his family was. Plus, in addition, you can see that they were learning, as you'll see in a second. So here's a boy growing up in Italy in the 1520s and 30s. Born in 1518, so it's the 1520s and 30s. What's the story at that time? Well, you still had... What I told the other day was the good popes. You understand? The Borgias and the Medici. They still were the good popes. They're rather easygoing on the Jews, relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. Therefore, Jewish life and Jewish scholarship. He's a a, a contemporary of this for now. Jewish scholarship could flourish. Our hero didn't go for MD or PhD or anything like that, as far as I know. He wasn't one of these Spanish Jews, I'm sorry, these Italian Jews who went for college education, although there were plenty of those, who were big Talmud Chachon. But rather, as far as I can tell, is Kulo Torah. That's who he was. So imagine a guy growing up in the 1520s and 30s, learning locally in northern Italy. You had some big heavy hitters at that time that people have never heard of. If I told you some of his Rebbe's were, it wouldn't mean anything to you. These are people who are sort of like the Talmudim of the Marik, or the Talmudim of the Talmudim of the Marik, or other Ashkenazi scholars. Venice and Padua were no joke. So all I can say is he had real Rebbeim, in which he learned of a storm. So that means his Teva was that. However, he's Italian and a Renaissance figure in the following sense, in the best sense. The best of the Western um, culture lay in its scientific approach, thinking clearly, systematically, organized fashion, not hop-plop, and building one premise on top of the other. That's how the Renaissance began slowly the march of the West towards modern science. Eventually, they worked out the scientific mess and all that. They hadn't yet at that time. And so, it's intellectually curious to Kufa. Now, our hero is not a member of the Renaissance. As far as I can tell, he's not interested in Italian poetry, Latin, the humanities, the Greek and Latin, uh, classics. Uh, as far as I can tell, it seems he was like a very frummy. However, he clearly had, clearly had a very logical and organized mind. How to tie this to a Renaissance background is, is a wonderful question. I, well, now, I'm not being funny. I would, I would give that to a grad student to investigate. That'll be a dissertation, but I mean, but clearly it's there. And in addition to that, learning up a storm, he says in something that perhaps I'll read later, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Now he was aware um, of how the Spanish Jews had been culturally raped, 
And what a blow it was to Torah scholarship and the way to combat the Yerida that had to come in the wake of the catastrophe of the expulsion of 1492. All those Rabbanim, all those yeshivas, all those schools closed down, kicked out, busted up. You know, it's like a mini, 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 mini holocaust. How do you combat that? You're not going to bring back the old school, by and large, that the way he would portray it back in the old days in Spain. Those who were into learning, there were plenty of Spanish Jews who were not into learning, but those who were into learning were into learning. And you chazer again and again and again and again and again and again, and then you chazer another hundred times. That ain't coming back. And so, what do you do? The answer is you got to meet them halfway. How do you meet them halfway? Through Western-type texts, which I call cheater books, in the best sense of the word. Okay? Um, so what do I mean? After he learned up his storm, he says, when I mean, he hit about 23 or so, so that would be 15, 18, early 1540s, okay? Early 1540s, uh, northern Italy. So he uh, sets out to, like the best Da'afiyomi giver in the world, to make the material easier for a potentially wide audience. I can't expect that people are going to sit and read manuscripts anymore and chaz them 10, 20,000 times and then proceed to the next manuscript and chaz that a million times, all the rest of it. So we have to make it that instead of demanding or the old school, which is you just have to memorize, 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 memorize. And after you memorize everything so often and you talk to it over a pilpah chaver and all the rest of it, you remember, oh yeah, maybe gem that's over here in Gitten. But there's a, it's also quoted there in a chulin or whatever. No, the, the, the Vilna Gaon type way. That is, um, makes things difficult. Instead, help the student. Through all kind of little tricks and shticks. And the Shulti Gibran will be a master of that. And in ways that uh, we encounter all the time, but you don't take, don't appreciate. So things as simple as putting the basic citations. I'm going to show you something really cool. And those who are able to see it on the screen will know what I'm talking about. And those of you listening to it will just imagine. I have here a book I picked up years ago at Shopsies at the bookstore. Nobody wanted it. And some guy, I think, uh, when it came out, some Duff, you know me, I don't know, whatever it was, somebody put out a thing called, which he has, as you see, a photostat, more or less, of every page that was ever printed, every edition of the Shas. So if you ask me the historical question, how many times has the Babylonian Talmud been published? And by published, I mean, not like a photo offset, but how many times was it reprinted? So historians will tell you, or you can look in this book, I mean, in Basel in this year, in Lublin in that year, in Frankfurt on Oder in that year, in Frankfurt on Main in that year. You know, and some of these sets were interrupted. And in the middle, this is something called the history of the uh, Talmud as a book. The Talmud Bible is a book. You understand? And it's had its ups and downs. I never did a series on that, I don't think. But that's a story by itself. You understand? Just of the physical book. And... Each time there was a printing, especially in the 1500s, the early years, these printings had unique features about them, or sometimes improvements on the previous one, in the best sense of business and of capitalism. You find what the product out there is, and then you put in an extra improvement so they'll buy it. That's how you sell cars. So why can't you sell Gamar too? Nothing wrong. Okay? Nothing wrong. And so the result was that there came out a whole bunch of these of different editions, there is a very famous essay, which I hold in my hand, called, as you see, Maimar al-Pasad al-Talmud. I have the, in my hand, the uh, Moserah Cook edition, by Rafal Nelson Rabinowitz. I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but you won't be able to find it on my site anywhere. i got to get somebody to fix their website. If anybody out there knows how to do that, contact me and make it more user-friendly. I don't know that stuff. But anyway, um, there was a guy in 1800s, a Russian Jew, a Tamil in Munich, which was not allowed, Jews were not allowed to live there. And 
But there were always a few richy riches that could do it. And one of the richy rich families in Munich, the kingdom of Bavaria, hired a tutor for their kids, Talmud Chacham. This guy was Rafal Nelson not to Rabinowitz. So he taught the family, children, you know, Jewish studies, Gemara, things like that. Mainly they had secular studies. He had a lot of time on his hands, you understand? And he went to the libraries, and one of the places he went to was the Royal Library in Munich. The rare books edition, uh, collection. And make a long story short, he discovered the, the Duque Sofrim, as he called it. Which was this wonderful, preserved edition, the Munich Codex of a set of the entire Babylonian Talmud with Rashi and Tosa, I think. Thing. Uh, which was obviously commissioned by a Reichman de la Reichman of the 1300s, a super rich guy. And the whole Shas was written out in calligraphy with pictures, you know, the way you used to write fancy uh, um, manuscripts once upon a time. The whole thing is high-end. And it was untouched, Not it was uncensored, too. So it was a tremendous find. Then he called it the Duque Sofram, and he published it. And he got a hundred haskamas from all the big gedolim, right to left, in Russia and in, in Poland, everywhere, Hungary. And I mean, the from guy, and without going off too far in the tangent, he appended to it a essay, a mimer, as you can see, while I'm holding my hand, on the pasuk Talmud, in which he goes through and evaluates every uh, edition of the Talmud that was ever published that he knew about. Uh, the first Venice, the first Sabianetta, the first Lublin, Basilea, Berlin, etc., etc. Okay? And what are the different features of each one? It's really something. Uh, anybody that has any shyness to this, this is the book you want to read. Okay? It's an essay. It's the book you want to read. I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with this, but I'm equally sure that many of your listeners never heard of this, which is why I'm sharing this with you. Okay? I have a variegated crowd. A lot of people never heard about this. So it's called Maimon al-Fasad al-Talmud, and it's published by Moser of Cook. Now, um, it's a nice addition, too. Uh, there's a modern professor named Marvin Heller, who, as you can see in your hand, I'm holding a, I have this book in front of me, Printing the Talmud, a history of the earliest printed editions of the Talmud, uh, which also goes into super detail and this sort of thing. That's only for a specialist, if you're super interested in what I'm talking about today. But between one and the other, they have just about all the information about the physical printings of the Gemara. Now, our hero, uh, what I'm about to say, I wasn't sure of at the beginning of the week. It took me a couple of days to do a little bit of research on this. And I discovered a lot of the ideas that I had, which is the old scholarship, have been uh, modified by recent scholarship, uh, quality stuff. Therefore, I'm presenting it now in a way I wouldn't have done a week ago. I actually waited to get a, ho a certain book, a safer, for open my big fat mouth. And that is the following. Our hero, Yeshua Boaz, um, who is a Sephardi, but he's growing up in Italy, he's learning in yeshivas in Italy. And again, he was uh, brilliant. There's no question about that. And he had a very logical mind, a uh, very logical mind, which is necessary. Um... Uh, and he also had the desire, the desire to um, carry out large literary projects. You know, some great gedolim were like that, and some not. Now, um, he got in his mind to uh, do several things. But all have in mind L'Shem Shamayib, which means to make the Gemara accessible and easier to understand for a much wider audience, wider audience, now that we're mass-producing it in something called a printed book form which never existed. Never existed. So you're going to be able to do Lahagdil Torah Lahadir, but you want to, as much as possible, in the best capitalistic sense, not simply have it in a printed form, which is great, but if you can add extra pitchivkas and things and little guides and helps, the way the Goyim do with their um, works, scientific works, is the Renaissance, so if they published classic editions of the Greek or Latin classics, they would try to have a concordancia for it and footnotes and cross-references and things. Oh, cross-references. Very interesting. So this is the first thing he had in mind, to come up with the cross-references. Now, I'm holding in my hand now 
a facsimile of the very first uh, Shas of Venice. This is the famous one, Bromberg edition. And you have over here Meimosai, the beginning of Brachas. If you look closely, and we're holding up to the screen best I can, right, this facsimile, so you see, it's just literally just the Gemara, just the Rashi, and the Tosis. There's nothing on this side. There's no fruit salad. No little references and little terms over there. Okay? So our hero undertook to do uh, when he got a job with the second printing of the Talmud. Therein lies a tale. And a notorious tale. Two guys, Goyim, got the idea from capitalism purposes to print another edition of the Talmud. And the Rambam, the, the, the Sefer, uh, what do you call it, the Yad HaChazaka. This guy, they were both Goyim who hated Jews, but they were rich Italians, noblemen. So this guy, Bragandini, he got his Jews. And this guy, Giustiniani, Marco Giustiniani, he got his Jews. And the first guy said, I'm going to publish an edition. And it'll be an improvement on the previous printing. Therefore, they'll sell like hotcakes, I'll make a big profit. And this guy thought the same way, I'll come up with, uh, what shall I say, improvements that the other guy doesn't have. Now, ordinarily, that's capitalism, it's a good thing. If people compete, the whole idea of the Adam Smith is, if they compete, they'll produce a better product, right? That's, that's what you hope. You compete, you produce a better product. The problem is, in those days, the free market was modified by the fact that you had Europe ruled by different um, rulers, noblemen, popes, princes, and so forth. Uh, there were political interests involved. I don't want to get bogged down in the story, but this competition led A, to get Haskamas from someone else, and B, to get Haskamas from someone else, and it grew into a big fight, and by the time it's all over, they dragged in the Catholic Church, and by the time that's all over, they burned all the Gomorrahs. But before that happened, there aren't many left. There are some left today, but not many. But that happened right after our hero died. So during his lifetime, it was as Hatzakikacht. Italy, in the intellectual sense, Northern Italy was a place to come and get with a new edition of Shas, and maybe to have a better edition of Rashi. And what else can you add to make the Gemara more cool? Like you say, take Chas and Shas, what are the new editions, uh, and this sort of thing. So one of them is, as again, I say over here, you see the original Shas, there's nothing on the side. So if Rashi or anybody quotes something, you have no idea where they're coming from. And certainly no parallel uh, parallel uh, citations. Okay? Now, once you get to what he calls Shin, the 1540s, you just see over here, uh... Once you get to the 1540s, so what do you start to see? Here's what. Here's a uh, Erevin. The stuff on the side. You see? These are the stuff on the side, but called the Masar Sashas. Okay? So it says over here, where else does it say it? Get it? And our hero is the guy that did it. There's somebody who started before him, but when he did it, there weren't any pages printed yet to reference. And our hero, he put the daf and, uh, you know, made things easier in that regard. And as you can already look over here in the Dvus Sabioneta, when I'm putting my hand over here, Mavoa Talmud Veina Mishpat. Right? And I'll show you, you know, the parallel places that you have in Shaskut. Makes a big difference whether you have it or not have it. This started him on a roll, and by the time he finished, he's the guy that put all the stuff on the side of the old-fashioned Gemaras. Okay? So I'll use a modern one. Gemara I like better. Was it the newer one with the Nakudas, all the rest of it? What is this? Ozvahada, right? I guess. I don't know what it is. Anyhow, uh, here, as you know, is what they usually use in yeshivas to look up if you want to know where it is in the Rambam and the Torah. And the smog. And here is the Masar Sashas, which tells you more concentrated form. By the way, this is new. It's called Masar Sashas Im Hosafot. 
So in other words, it'll tell you any Gemara reference or Mishnah, Mishnah or something like that, where this phrase appears, and you can check it out over there. And uh, so what do you have? You have the Masoretic Shabbat, the Mishpah, the Torah, or if any Pasuk, where the Pasuk is located. Of course, now in the new Gemaras, they even give you the full Pasuk, Torah or HaShalem. That's a new expression, Torah HaShalem. Uh, they give you the whole Pasuk, which is great, right? What our hero did was, he's the one who went through the whole Shas for this new edition from Justiniani. Justiniani hired him. And he said, you know, your, your stuff will help me capitalistically to, you know, sell more Gemaras. Nothing wrong with that. It's actually good. There's nothing wrong with doing that, right? You're inc- improving the quality of your product to get more buyers. Fine. Uh, now, it's a votus parach to find out all the cross-references when it never existed before. It's not like it is today. You hit a button, you know, you don't need the concordancy anymore, correct? You know, when I was a kid, you needed this set, this set, that set, if you cared to do that. Now, it's a press a button on the internet, it's all there. Okay? And you want to, you know, if it's in the Yushalmi or whatever, you can find anything. Wasn't like that. And so you tell me, what was the effect? Because from then on, it was copied in every set of Gemara of opening this up to the learner. Tell me the level of Havana and clarity and differability to think more clearly and be Mechadish more successfully. Be Mechadish more successfully as a result of the fact that you can look it up in the Rambam, the Torah, and the others. Now I want to tell you something funny. When I was a kid and the yeshivas, so you used to look this over here, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience. You look inside, it says, Mem Yod Yod Maimini, that's Maimonides, the Rambam and Perik Vav Hilkas, Okay. Smag Ase Memches. So he lived at the time in early 1500s, our hero, Rabbi Shua Boaz, when the smog was a big deal. Today the smog has fallen into desuetude, the safe midst of Gadolis. But in fact, I don't think anybody she was ever seen one except in the Hay Mishpah over here. Um, the third one is Tesvav Shin Ayin. So is a tour of Vishulchanarch. Because, you know, when Rabbi Yosef Kar wrote the Shulchan Aruch, he on purpose made it on the system of the tour. Or Chaim Ebenezer, Yordei, Chosha Mishpat, same Simon. And so when, when we used to learn, we say, here it is in the Rambam, in Maimini, and here's in the tour of the Shulchan Aruch. And if you saw a reference over there, and you want to look it up, how the Shulchan Aruch brings it down, because that's a very important thing to do when you're learning. See how the Rambam says it. See how the Mechabit or Amos say it. Very important. Um, so you know where to look. Later, I realized that our hero, Yeshua Boaz, died in 1554, 55, something like that. There was no Shulchan Aruch yet. They came out later. See, some the tour. So he says, Tour Shulchan Aruch. That's the original name. It's the Arbaturim. It's called the Tour Shulchan Aruch. So he's referencing it by the tour. That's all they had at that time. <clears throat> okay? Now, that itself is, as I say, a public service. Someone would say, well, but it's not Ramdis or anything like that. It's just Avodis Perich, Chamor Nosis Farm, that kind of language. Which is not really true, but I hear. I understand that. In addition to that, he published, this is remarkable. Um, now, I'm going a little bit out of order, but I'm doing it on purpose. His basic commentary on on the riff, and that's what put him on the map. I don't think anybody pays attention to what I just showed you. The Ain Mishpat, the stuff on the side of Gemara. You say, whoever made it, made it. I use it. I don't use it. Whatever, whoever did it, did it. Plus, it's been added to in later generations. Huh. You know, we don't show gratitude to the publisher, to the printer. You know, that's very Shivish, uh, elitist attitude. However, uh. In addition to that, there's the riff in the back. And the riff in the back has all its own stuff. I like this new edition. So this is Ksuvas that happened to be the Ron. So you see how they have over here the Ron organized in that way instead of a blob of uh, text. I like that a lot. Then you have some of the classic guys on the riff. No, you don't. You basically have the Ron and the Shultiget Bowen. This guy on the side. That's our hero. So here, he goes through the whole riff, which was held in very high esteem, 
and will study as a separate sefer in yeshivas and shuls and places like that, halachas arif, and it was used as a sefer o'iyun. And consequently, our hero, knowing that, and wanting to help the average guy out there, wrote the show to give him, in which case, it's a certain type of commentary. Can I call it a tosis on the riff? Something like that. In which he brings, you know, the riff says this, the Rambam might say it differently, the Torah might say it differently, the Smog might say it differently, uh, the Bali tosis might have a, and often too, have a different take on it, and he discusses it, and so on and so forth. It's very famous, he's always bringing the Riyaz. I had no idea what the Riyaz is. Turns out, it's Rishaya Trani, one of these Italian Roshonim. He's a very important figure, but nobody has heard of him, you know. And our hero obviously lived in Italy, and he must have had Rebbeim, in which the Misora, the physical Misora, mouth to mouth, was still there. So, oh, the Riyaz said this, the Riyaz said that. He passed this way. And where he came from in Italy, if the Riyaz passed that way, that can even defeat a riff. Listen, sets your hands on Masora. I'm telling you, he learned in yeshivas old, old, old Masoras, Italian Masoras. So it's very, very interesting. So he's into this Detrani stuff. This Safer took off. And that made his name. That's why when I started today, I saw him talk about the Sultan Gabar. Everybody said, oh, okay, I know who that is. I don't know much about it, but I know who he's talking about. If I would say today, I'm going to talk about Rishua Boaz of Italy, so who the heck is that? <laughs> You know, it doesn't mean anything to you. Shultikavarim. Now, the Pasuk Shultikavarim means the place to hang up shields. So he's hanging up the shields of the other Rishonim. You know what I mean? Notice here's the rift. But here, uh, I'll show you the shield, meaning the sheet of Tosus, of the Rajba, of the Tor, the Rambam, the Smog, and so on and so forth. And he's no saving note, and this and that and the other. Fine. This was his big piece of luck. Because this is how he entered the rabbinic pantheon. The whole world knows the Shultikavarim. Uh, it's something you do when you're learning riff if you do that. In yeshivas, it depends on what kind of share you're doing, you know. But uh, that put him on the map. And everybody knows it's an important safer in the back of the Gemara and the riff. Right? Uh, he has his own cautious and truth and so on and so forth. So, that got out there. I'll tell you something extraordinary. He wrote this in the 1540s and early 1550s. Because the guy was born in 1518. So he only turned 20 years old, 1538. So in the 1540s and 1550s, he died in the middle of 1550s. You know, um, that's when he wrote this. And it got published. Guess what? Right after he died, or actually a little before he died, right around that time, the Pope... I'm going back to that story of two guys that competed with the different chasses. Uh The Pope, who was then with a momster, I think Julius III, burned all the Gemaras. That's when it happened. This is called Strafus at Talmud Vitalia. There's probably a Google zone or articles online. Very famous episode. There's a whole story behind it, but I won't go into it now. And they did a pretty doggone thorough job of burning all the Gemaras. And not only that, they prohibited the study of the Gemara. And they didn't let up on that for a long time. And to the degree that they allowed anything, you couldn't call it the Talmud. You see, the Talmud is a word that entered the Catholic lexicon back in the time of Nicholas Donin in, in uh, the 12th, 20s, 30s, and 40s, which culminated in the burning of the Talmud um, in Paris which I think you've all heard of. It's this Friday. is the famous uh, anniversary. So I may talk about this in the podcast about tefillah. But at that time, without going through a lot of details, uh, the Catholic Church discovered such thing called a Talmud. They thought it was a guy. And it became poison to them. And now in the middle of 1550s, the Pope and the Church really went after that. So you couldn't say the word Talmud. If you publish, even later when the Catholic Church changed its mind a little bit, you could call it the Shas. You could call it the Gemara. Don't call it the Talmud. See? So originally I think it was called Maseris Talmud, and then it called it Maseris Shas. A friend of mine, it's funny, when I was thinking about this, I just looked up online, and uh, the Rambi, anything about Yeshua Boaz, if there's something recent I don't know about, just now, Eli Ganauer in Seattle, published in Arnold Hakira, 
Mamash on the exact history of the Messiah's Hashas, if you're interested in that level of detail. And I wrote him, he's nice enough to send it to me. He was my first sponsor years ago. And on the podcast, really. And uh, he goes into all this nitty gritty stuff about, you know, when was the, who was the first guy that put out the, the citation aside and how to show a boss. Modify that and so on and so forth. I'm not interested in that level of detail for this podcast. I would simply say that what emerged in Italy was the following fact. You couldn't learn Gemara. There weren't any copies of Gemara, so they learned Riff. Yeah. For a long time, all you could have was Riff. And you couldn't complain to the Catholic Church that I'm not interested in answering you. And that's really when these Riff-type Gemaras, which have the Riff in the middle, like the Gemara and you know, Rashi on the side and Duran or whoever, you know, Ben or whatever, Muki Yosef, that's when they really took off. You could only learn Riff. So imagine if you went to Yeshiva, what are you going to learn now in Dafiyomi? Kasubas, imagine learning Kasubas, just a riff. So look at this. At that point, the Ron becomes extremely important, and the Shulte Gabar becomes, in some respects, even more important, simply because the Shulte Gabar is going to tell you what other Mufarsham have, and you don't have access to those in Italy in after 1555. Isn't that interesting? And so he was like a Navi. He said, I'm writing this on the riff, and maybe this will help people learn the riff. And shortly afterwards, boy, oh boy, baby, that became the book you needed. If you want to know what Tosa says or something like that, you learn the riff. Again, I'm learning Ksubis. I don't have a Gemara. I'm not allowed to have a Gemara. So how am I going to learn Ksubis? The answer is you learn as best you can. You know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. If you have a problem you can't solve, you manage it. And so they had to learn. People don't get this. They had to learn riff. And... You know, here and there, somebody had a stolen Gemara or whatever. It was very dangerous. Uh, just look at Azaria Figo. You know, he talks about having three copies of the, like Baba Kama and one or two other things. That's how he did his his uh, Truma. It's, it's crazy. You see? So all of a sudden, the riff I'm allowed to have. See, the riff is called Alphas. It's not called Talmud. Okay, that's okay. I, it's a Catholic bureaucratic mentality. They set up a censorship system. They can only publish certain books. This has to do with the Council of Trent in the 1560s, and they established the Index Expurgatorum and the Censorship Commission. This is a whole, that's a whole partial by itself. So Shulte Gibberum became a very, very nachutz uh, item in the Italian yeshivas for a long time. And it, it, it had importance, not the same amount of importance, outside of Italy. Shulte Gibberum is important in as we would say today. Remember, before... Yosef Caro. He was a younger contemporary of his. Or he lived in the younger years of his. Now, so far, so good. I could wrap it up at this point and say, therefore, we have a famous person who, considering he only lived to be 36, did a lot by going through all shots and putting all these things on the side, the Ain Mishpat, the Pesukim, the citations. You know, like I say, it's an Avodas Parach. That's the type of scientific Renaissance work in which you have a pencil piece of paper and you're copying citations. In other words, I see how who gabra is like this and I make a note of it and I keep it in my, um, what's the right word, file box, you know. And then when I knew another who gabra, I say, oh, it's also here in this, in this place. And by the time I'm finished, if I've gone through all the shots, I've done my job right, I have my uh, uh, index cards and they will tell you when all the places start. In other words, you have to write a dictionary from scratch. That's what you basically talk about. That's what I mean when I say in Zavodis Perch. <clears throat> however, however, I'm not finished. Turns out, this is funny, or sad, or whatever. Turns out that our hero actually wrote something much more Chashev than anything I mentioned before, even though that's Chashev too. And it's a doggone shame that nobody ever heard about it. And pre- basically nobody knew it existed until last very, very recently, and it was only published Mamish in the very in the twenty first century. Okay? And that and I tell you the truth, I myself saw it some time ago at the Hebrew bookstore and I said, eh, you know, shoulder And the good Lord now kicked me in the pants because I'm doing this, all of a sudden I had to call up and say, You have any copies left? They had one left. And that's this. Which you see in front of you, which is very recently published. It's called Safer Hamachlokas. 
and Sefer Hapshutim from Yeshua Boaz, the Shulte Gebar. And what it is, is like this. He wrote, this is crazy. Between the age of 23 and the time he died in 36, he went to gunshots and he wrote something to be a grand cheater book to help the average student out there. And that is Sefer Habshutim. If you go through the whole Shas, what comes out Pashat, no, it's not subject to Machlekes, by re- after reading this Gemara. How would you summarize either a page or a sugya or a discussion in the Gemara? Halacha Lameisa. Page after page of Shas. The parts that are not subject to arguments. That's called Sefer Habshutim. Okay? Then, you have in the Gemara, a million places, in which it's a machlogus. Rabbi Kiva versus Rabbi Tarfa, Abaya versus Rava, Rav versus Shmuel, that sort of thing. There are millions of those. And he has each one, and he tells you who he possibly like. After some issues, he's mafopal in it. It's not simply chamornos uh, as they said before. You understand? And so basically what it is, is an outline of the entire Talmud. He's doing something even the Rambam didn't do. The Rambam gave you the final halachi thing of it, but he doesn't tell you where he got it from. This guy's telling you where it comes from, but he's doing it the other way around. You're going through the Gemara and working out to the halacha lemaisa. In other words, this was clearly meant, as far as I can see, to be a basic textbook used in yeshivas, in which what the guy does is, let's say you learn a certain Gemara, and then you look up in here to see if you learned it right. Maybe there's another way of using it, but that's the way it strikes me. He even made a mafteach, uh, which they follow in this book, and that's the mafteach based on the tour. Okay, and as you see in the back, if you want to find something, you got to use the tour shulchan. The tour and the shulchan is the same thing in this regard. If you want to find Hilchah Shabbos, you know you're going to know where to look it up, and you know what I mean around Shin or something like that in Orachayim. If you look at Hilchah Dayanim, is going to be the first part of Chashim uh, Mishpat, and so on and so forth. Right, you know. Pure Arabia, the beginning of Ebenezer. Uh, and that's the system. No, it's not according to the Shas, but according to the Shulchan Aruch, the Tour. And so clearly, it was to enable the student. It's, it's another version of the Beis Yosef, but in a different style, much more kitzer, and maybe better organized. Uh, so you look at the either, you can do it either way. You look at the Gemara, and then you see the dinner. You look at the din, you see where the Gemara comes from. And again, it's not just you know, spanning over here. Usually it's very much the kitzer, but sometimes uh, uh, fairly often, and I just got it the other day, I see he goes into an issue when it deserves to go into an issue, and believe me, he'll bring down the important Mishonim, you know, the Ramban, the Rashi, Tosa, this, that, and the other, the Mordechai, it's all in there. Through the This is a masterwork. The Dolan Shem was never known. Apparently it was in a library somewhere, Somebody discovered in the last 20 years or something like that. Uh, it was around, and some rich guy, Friedman, whoever he is, got into this, and he paid a whole, you know, Kolel to work on this stuff. And they published it recently um, with it, with our hero's introduction, and where he says, I hope this will help uh, make up for the expulsion from Spain, the arena in learning, and maybe this will help guys get clarkite uh, when they're going through this Gemara, which is just an endless sea out there of Talmud. Uh, he didn't live in our time today when you have Mishnah Boran, who knows what, you know, you have all kinds of things. And so, uh, as he says, I'll just read you a short little piece over here. It's, it, it, uh, it's, it's, um, it's worthwhile to go through this and... Uh, you know, uh, I could even do, I'm not going to, I could even do a podcast just reading this. Because a little bit of his history of the Torah Shabbat But he said, Oh, 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 um, that, uh, you know, his cotton adoras, as they say, and they couldn't figure out Mishnah, let alone the other self. And then he goes on to say, he had the expulsion from Spain, all that stuff. And therefore, I put out this whole thing. I mean, this is like the Rambam. The guy did it between the age of 23 and 36. The Sefer of Shud and the Machlogis. And now that we have this, it turns out that when you look in the Shul de Gebarim, he's actually this, a kisser. 
something more of the kitzer, kitzer, kitzer of the fact book. Okay? Which is amazing. In my opinion, it's a shame, and I'm sure they'll repair this, that they should really get use out of this book, which is very impressive, is to make a maftech shas. You understand? Uh, you know, to, they have maftech of the Shulchan Aruch, which is what he did, but maftech shas. Go through page by page in the Talmud, I find out where he talks about it, and then you have a, in my opinion, you have a tremendous preparation for a bechina. You get it? It's a sidur hashitos in the best sense of the word, like the old Hungarian yeshivas, and you have it logically laid out what the different opinions are, and if there's a machlokus, I'll tell you what the machlokus is. He'll he'll be he'll be machriyat himself. You know he's not afraid to do that. You don't have to listen to him. You know, and the whole thing smells of clarity. You understand? Of clarity of organization, which means he had a very powerful and organized mind. It's obviously a tragedy that he died at such a young age. Imagine a guy like him would live another 35 years. Well, who knows what he would have pulled off. For all I know, he might have done, uh, you know, encyclopedia Talmudit, so forth. He was a, seems to have been that type. You don't realize what a big Talmud Chochem he was. I didn't. Until you see this. Okay? So, Hakel Trichen Maz feel Sefer Toshel that the history of literature in general, including rabbinic literature, is the history of Mazel. Some books hit the, the, the charts and some books don't. Something a guy writes and it stays in manuscript, it gets burned or something, and nothing comes from it. You have no idea who the guy was. In our case, we have a situation which is funny, namely, that somebody clearly was a biggie, but people didn't realize how big, at least I don't think they did. And based on what I'm seeing over here, you, you, so I guess, wow, this guy was a heavy hitter. Okay? Which is funny because we don't usually think usually people like this in Italy. And for most people, Yeshua Boaz is associated... Yeah, he's the guy that did the stuff on the side of the Gemara, which, again, is very important. But it doesn't seem to scratch the surface. And as I said, anybody goes to the Shulte Gebarim, they make the point in the Hakdam of the book, and I looked at a few cases, you'll see that the Shulte Gebarim is nothing but a like a, 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 a kitzer, so to speak. The kitzer and of what's explained much more clearly in greater length over here in this Sefer. So if you're at all interested, I was saying today, uh, this is an interesting book to get. Like I said, it would be much more useful and much more used, in my opinion, if it was according to the pages of the Gemara. Imagine you're going to start Ksubis now, I know, the Dafyomi. You have a Beza Manalov. You know what I mean? Basul and Nisus and so forth and so on. Uh, and you see what he has. Like I said before, it's it's your cheater notes for the Bechina that's coming up. That's very good. Isn't it? That's very good. And if the Bochin says, like, give me a Siddur Shittas, or, you know, I don't know, Basul and Nisus, or, you know, Nestap Chasadeh, whatever you want to say, Chazud Dasai, whatever it is, you'll have it out here laid out. So he wanted to make it easier on the Ayain to master the material, because he basically was saying, as I understand it, what we had in Spain where a guy causes 10 million times ain't going to happen anymore. And so we have to meet the student halfway. As we do nowadays with the art school, Steinsaltz and all the rest of it. This is one stage in the improvement. Rav Cook has a famous speech, which I mentioned when I did Rav Cook, in which he said, what you really need is like Steinsaltz, the whole quote from the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. Okay, but he is an important person in starting down that road. So that's how I would uh, portray the the person we call the Shulte Gavara. Really should be known as the Sefer Machlokas or the Sefer Abshutin. But history is funny. The things that hit the public uh, in, in, and catch the public interest do. And the things that don't, don't. Although maybe now that they published this, they discovered it in some manuscript somewhere. Maybe we'll have the revival of a Shulte Gavarim cult. I don't know. Uh, here's the manuscript, which they found, which is not impossible to read, but it's not easy either. It's the old-fashioned Hebrew script. By the way, very clear handwriting. Yeah, You get the idea. Clarkite was like a big deal to him. Anyway, um, the time is running out, so I want to thank, once again, Ben C. and Bernstein. And I think I just scratched the surface of the Shulter Gebara, uh, which is all you can do in a podcast. If this is of interest, I strongly urge you to pursue this on your own. Uh, but without, w- with that, I will bid you adieu.
For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.